How many of you people have ever heard this? How many has ever heard this? If you shave, if you shave, the hair is going to grow back stronger and faster. How many people have ever heard that? It's a myth. It's not true. I tried for years. I wanted just a big beard so bad, and it just won't happen. It's not true. Not just because it didn't work for me, but it really is just scientifically a myth. What about this one? You need to wait 30 minutes after you eat before you swim so you don't cramp. How many people have ever heard that? It's not true. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's not true scientifically. It's a myth. All of us believe things that aren't true because we've just heard them enough times we assume that they were true. You tell a lie enough times, it kind of just feels like it's true. And, and that's what a myth is. A myth is something that is widely believed because it's just been around long enough or it's been repeated enough times that we, you know, we assume it's true. And this series is about a myth that has been spreading since the beginning of time. Since Eve ate that apple in the garden, generation after generation after generation has been passing down the happiness myth. The happiness myth. And the happiness myth is simply the belief that my way is the best way to be happy. The happiness myth is that my way is the best way to be happy. My way is the best way to be happy. And all of us at some point in our lives wrestle with that, really not some point, throughout our lives we wrestle with that, whether it's true or not, we embrace it sometimes, that all of us have this thing inside of us that wants to do things our way. No matter what other people tell us, no matter what advice we get, we wanna do things our way but it almost never works out in the long run. Short term, yeah, maybe, but in the long run, the happiness myth doesn't work because if it worked, we'd be happy. But we're not happy. I tell the story sometimes about um, uh, when I was in middle school, I was on the basketball team and you know, all like five to 110 pounds of me was on the basketball team. And uh, seventh grade you know, was coming up and season was starting and and I just moved to a new school. And so I actually had to try out. And, uh, and so I, didn't, I needed some basketball shoes. And I wanted the Anthony Hardaways. I don't know if you remember the Anthony's, but man, they were nice. And so I wanted them. And I, they, but like my parent, my dad had a rule. We don't spend more than $50 on shoes. Anybody's dad have a rule like that? Like we don't spend more than $50 on shoes. So my, my options were limited, $50 shoes. You know, my options are limited. And so, I, but I went to my mom because she was the softy, you know. I was like, Mom, I really want these Anthony Hardaways. They'll make me play better, you know. And, and she's like, all right, let's go. So we go to the mall, and, and every store is sold out of these shoes, man. They're incredible, you know. Every, every store. And so my mom's like, let's try Macy's. I said, Mom, you don't buy Anthony Hardaways at Macy's, you know. And she's like, no. So we go, sure enough, they've got them on the shelf. There they are. But I wear a six and a half. And all they've got is a six. And mom's like, no, I won't fit. Don't worry about it. I said, no, 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 just let me try it on. Just let me try it on. So they bring them out. This is the last store we're going to. I try them on. They're a little snug, but it's okay. I can fit into them. And so I convinced my mom. She said, Jason, no, we can't. I said, mom, trust me. Just get the shoes. Get the shoes, mom. I promise. They fit. They're just right. Listen, fit on my toe. It's good. It's good. Jason, no. I said, mom, please. So she buys them. I put them on, I wear them to school the next day, and by second period, I am like limping, blisters. I call my mom, I'm like, mom, you gotta bring my shoes. 
You understand? So that, so that day she picks me up, and we, I still need basketball shoes, but I can't wear the Anthony Hardaway's. So we go to Walmart, and nothing wrong with buying stuff at Walmart, but you don't want to get your basketball shoes for middle school tryouts from Walmart. And so we go in and we find some that fit, and I don't, then I've never seen them again, but the name, brand name was like Flack, Flack Shoes. So I wear them to tryouts that year, and I ended up making the team, but one day one of the guys on the team was like, what shoes are those? And I was like, oh man, these are the Flax. <laughs> and for the rest of the four years we lived in that city and went to that school, no one ever called me Jason ever again. They called me Flack. That was my name. Flack, what's up? That was the name, Right. And that's a silly example, but the reality is, I probably shouldn't have told that story, it's going to stick, but the reality is, the reality is all of us have that feeling in our life when we're determined that we know what's best, we know what should be done, even though someone else, an authority figure in our life, whatever it is, is saying, no, I don't think so. We believe that our way is the best way to be happy, my way. It's the best way to be happy. So over the next six weeks, we're going to study the book of Judges. That's, what, that's where this is all based out of, the book of Judges. And we're going to see what happens to a group of people, to a nation, over 350 years when these people decide to live their life based on the happiness myth. All right? Now, Judges is the story of Israel after Moses and after Joshua. So even if you haven't read the Bible, you probably know the story of Moses. You've seen a movie. He leads the people out of Egypt, okay? And then they uh, are supposed to go into the promised land like two weeks later, but they disobey God. And so God sends them in the, around the desert for 40 years. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land. But now Joshua has died. All right, now Joshua's died. So Moses is gone, Joshua is gone, and Israel has moved into the promised land. That is what the book of Judges is about. And the reason I think this book is so applicable and practical to where you and I live is because now that they are in the promised land, they're having to decide for the first time in their life if they want to fully obey God now that they don't have to. Because they had to before. If, if God didn't send fish and bread from the sky, they didn't eat. If God didn't move the cloud in the sky, they didn't know where to go. Like their lives were fully dependent on God. But now they're in the promised land. And they don't have Moses and they don't have Joshua and they don't need bread to fall out of the sky and they don't need a cloud anymore. They're not desperate anymore. So now they get to decide, do I wanna fully rely and obey God even though now I don't, I don't have to. I think like practical examples for us, modern day examples for us would be when we have to decide if we wanna fully obey God, even though we don't need him like we used to need him. Like for example, um, maybe you have a court date and you are maybe possibly facing jail time. And the thought and the fear of facing jail time drives you to church and it drives you to spirituality and you just don't want to go to jail. And sure enough, you pray and people are praying and sure enough, it's like, hey, I didn't, I was spared. God was faithful. I'm not in jail anymore. And we have to kind of decide at that moment, okay, I'm not desperate anymore. Am I still going to be fully committed to God even though maybe jail is not on the table anymore? Or maybe you find that career or that job that you've always wanted. Maybe that's your promised land. 
and you've moved into your promised land. And now that you've got that job or that career, you're not desperate to depend on God anymore. And so you have to decide, am I going to be fully dependent on God, fully obey God, or I don't have to, like, am I going to do that? Or am I going to kind of partially obey God? Maybe all you wanted in life was to be married. I just want to be married, tired of not being married. You're praying, you're coming to church. Somebody told you church was the best place to meet somebody, so you just keep coming and you're coming to church. You want to be married, you want to be married. And sure enough, God provides a spouse and you get married. Now that you have moved into your promised land, right, you have to decide. Now that I've gotten what I want from God, am I still going to fully obey and rely on God, an income level that you hoped for. Maybe your marriage was struggling and you came to church because your marriage was falling apart and you were desperate for God to do whatever God could do to save your marriage, and he did. And now that you're in your promised land, so to speak, you have to decide, are we still gonna fully rely on God, fully obey God, or now that we don't have to or need to, will, will we stop? I could keep going. I hear so many stories of, of all of us. It's not you versus me, it's all of us that, that, that God's ways always seem like the best way when we're desperate, don't they? But when we're comfortable, full commitment to God feels like overkill, right? I mean, when we're desperate, God's way seems like the best way. Hey, whatever God wants me to do, whatever I need to do, he knows better than I know, he knows best than I, like, so whatever God needs me to do. But when we're comfortable, we've moved into our promised land, we're established, we're stable, life is good, Full commitment to God seems like maybe too much to ask or, or overkill. Judges, the book of Judges, is about a group of people who aren't desperate anymore. They're not desperate anymore. And so God's ways feel a little bit unreasonable. And in their minds, happiness is found in personal freedom. In their minds, happiness is found in personal freedom. So before we start at the beginning, because we're going to be in Judges 1, but before we start at the beginning, I want us to read the very last verse of the book of Judges. So we're starting at the beginning, but, but we're going to go to Judges chapter 21 and read the very last verse of the book because it's a eulogy in a sense. So the author of the book of Judges is looking for the right words to, to sum up the last 350 years. What words could he use to describe what has happened for these people over the last 350 years? And so the very last sentence, the very last verse of the book of Judges says this in Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Those days, the last 350 years, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's it. That is the happiness myth. If I do what seems right to me, I'll be happy. It's a really popular philosophy. It's kind of a a postmodern philosophy that says, hey, you do what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me. And as long as we're not hurting anybody... We're good, right? Maybe you've heard that said, or maybe you've said it yourself. Maybe, maybe you've used the phrase, like, as long as you're happy. I mean, I don't know if necessarily that's, like, you know, the best choice. But you know what? As long as you're happy, then, hey, go for it, you know? Well, I mean, if it, if it makes them happy, I, I, guess that's, I guess that's okay. That is the happiness myth. Hey, whatever seems right to you, 
You know, we don't, it doesn't matter if there's a king. It doesn't matter if there's an authority. It doesn't matter if there's a way. Listen, whatever seems right to you, you do you. Whatever seems right to me, I'll do me. And we'll all, we'll all be happy. We'll all be happy. Well, today, we're going to look at the first chapter, and we're going to see the origins, the groundwork for everything that's going to unfold over the next 350 years. And in case you can't make it back over the next five more weeks, let me just give you a heads up. It does not go well. It does not go well. And it all starts in chapter one. So if you have a Bible or whatever you use for a Bible, go ahead and get that out. Judges chapter one. If not, it'll be up on the screen for you. And I want to read something to you. Before we start in Judges 1, I want to read something to you from Numbers chapter 33. I'm going back just a little bit. But when Moses was still alive, God knew, because he's God, what was going to happen. And he told Moses to tell the people what was going to happen and what he wanted them to do, which is always nice. That'd be great if God's like, hey, listen, in five years it's going to happen. Here's what I want you to do. Like, that'd be great. And so God says to Moses in Numbers 33, I want you to tell the people, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the people living there. You must destroy all their carved and molten images and demolish all their pagan shrines. Take possession of the land and settle in it because I have given it to you to occupy. Skip down to verse 55. It says, but if you fail to drive out the people who live in the land, those who remain will be like splinters in your eye and thorns in your side. They will harass you in the land where you live. So before we ever got to the book of Judges, God told Moses two very clear things to tell the people. He says, look, you're going to take the land. The promised land is yours. You're going to make it. All right? But when you do get into the land... I want you to do two things. Very clearly, God says do two things. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to drive out all the people. Drive out all the people. Every one of them, drive them out. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to destroy all the idols. Anything that anybody worships besides me, if it's a building, if it's a pole, if it's a statue, whatever it is, I want you to destroy all the idols. So when you get in the land, drive out all the people, destroy all the idols. That was God's way. That was God's instruction, all right? So let's pick up in chapter one, verse 19. It says, the Lord was with the people of Judah. Great, that's awesome, yes. And they took possession of the hill country. They're in, like they've made it into the land and they took possession of the hill country. But, everybody say but. But. Turn to the person you're sitting beside and tell them your butt's getting in the way. Just tell them your butt's getting in the way. But, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains. They took the land. God was with them. They took the land. And God says, listen, when you take the land, do two things. Drive everybody out, destroy the idols. The people moved into the land, but... They failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. The Bible doesn't tell us why they didn't do it. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe the iron chariots is in there because they want us to know they had iron chariots. They were a strong, you know, militant group. I don't know. 
We don't know why, but they didn't do it. And we keep reading, and I'm not, I don't have time to read it all, but you look at Judges chapter 1, and you start like at verse 27. It starts talking about all the tribes, not just Judah. 27 says the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people. Uh, 28 says, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. 29, the tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites. 30, the tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents. 31, the tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Acho. 33, likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents. On and on and on and on we keep going. Here are all the tribes of Israel that Moses told the people from God, you're going to take the land, and when you do, God says, drive them all out, destroy all the idols. The people get into the promised land, and they kind of obey God. Like, they took the land. They won the battle. But they didn't fully obey God. Now, I want you to just wrap your mind around this for a second because these are the same people that completely, fully followed the instructions of God to destroy the walls of Jericho. This is the same generation, same parents, same kids, same family. They're living in the desert. They've got no home. They're still dependent on bread and fish from the sky. And God says, cross the river and go over to Jericho and walk around it. Don't say anything. Just walk around it one time, first day. Get up the second day, do it again. Get up the third day, do it again. Get up the fourth day, do it again. Fifth day, do it again. Sixth day, do it again. On the seventh day, don't say anything still. Walk all the way around, but do it seven times. And on the seventh time, I want you to blow trumpets and break glass jars. Strange instruction, but that's what God said to do. And the people did exactly what God said to do. Why? They were desperate. They were desperate. They knew there's no way those walls fall unless they do it the way God told them to do it. The same people who followed those silly instructions and saw the walls fall down around Jericho now get into the land and they kind of do what God says to do. Kind of. It only takes half a chapter of the book of Judges for the people to disobey God's plans and to come up with their own plan. They came up with their own plan. Once Israel found themselves in a place where they didn't think they had to fully obey God, they chose not to. And that's probably the soundtrack of civilization since the beginning of time. That once we don't have to, we choose not to. Practically speaking, this is that last 10% of our lives that we're afraid to give over to God or we just don't want to give over to God. We give God 90% of us. He can have our lives, but there is that 10% that we hold on to and we struggle to give it completely over to God. When these are those areas of my life and of your life where God has made it clear what his ways are. God has made it clear, I know. I know what he's saying. I know what he's knocking on my heart to do. I know what the preacher's preaching. I know what the Bible is saying when I read it. Like I know what God is telling me to do. I know what God's ways are but I don't fully obey. And I've convinced myself that I can't fully obey. I just can't do it. When the truth is, I won't. It's not that I can't. It's just that I won't. I won't do it. And maybe Israel's like, well, we would fully obey. We would drive out all the people, but they got them iron chariots, man. And I don't think we can, I don't think we can beat those iron chariots. We don't know why they did it, but the Israelites made up their minds somehow that they couldn't do it when the truth is they wouldn't do it. How, how does that apply to where you and I are? Because I think the book of Judges is so applicable to where we live, where we know God's ways. They're clear, but we just can't fully submit 
and fully obey. We live lives partially obedient to God and what he wants for our lives. Maybe, maybe an example would be that you're a go-getter. You work hard. You wake up early. You go to bed late. You're striving to be a hard worker, to do the best you can, to build a business, to be a great employee, to provide for your family. Go, 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 and you're successful at it. But you know that God said, take a Sabbath. You know that. You hear it when we preach about it. You hear it when, we read it when you read it. Like, you know God's instruction is to take a Sabbath. And you come to this, this fork in the road. You come to this crossroad where God's way says, work six, take a Sabbath. You look at it and you go, but I got this, 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 and this. I can't. But that's not true. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Because in your mind, even though you know God's way, in your mind, you, you believe that your way is the best way to be happy. Maybe it's not happiness. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's fulfillment. You say, Jason, if I work six, my competitors work seven, there's no way I'll succeed. It's because you believe your way is the best way. It's the happiness myth. It's been around forever. And so you weigh out what God says to do versus your common sense and, the, and your life and what you think is absolutely true. And you say, God, I want to take a Sabbath. I know you told me to take a Sabbath. I just can't do it. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't, right? Maybe um, another example would be that you have deep hurt in your life. Somebody hurt you bad. They hurt you deep. And I'm not minimizing what they did to you. But you know you know that God says, that God's ways, that God's instruction says to forgive. Forgive and to let go of the hurt. You know it. And you come to this fork in the road or you come to this crossroad and you're, you've got what God says, you've got God's way, and you say, okay, God's way says to forgive, but I, when I think about what they did to me and when I think about what they said, I just can't do it. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Because in your mind, the best way for you to feel better is your way and not God's way. Maybe you're struggling financially. You're struggling financially, but you've been around church and the Bible enough to know that God's way says to tithe. God's way says to tithe. And you come to this fork in the road, this crossroad, and you've got God's way and God's instruction. And God says, I want the first 10% of everything you bring in to be given back to me. But you figure out where you are and you see God's way and you think of your way and you, you're, you're at that fork in the road and you say, I want to obey God. I just can't. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Because in your mind, your way is the best way. And God's way is a good way. Hey, if you can do it God's way, I think that's great. Hey, if you can tithe, if you can forgive, if you can take a Sabbath, man, that's awesome. I think that's great for you. And I think as many people should do that as possible. But what seems right to me is to do it this way. And if I do what seems right to me and you do what seems right to you, we'll be okay, but it never works out that way. Maybe you're in a sexually active relationship. And you know, I mean, the Bible says that sex outside of marriage defiles you. That's what the Bible says. And, and, and so you, you come to this crossroad, you come to this, 
this fork in the road and you know God's way and you know God's instruction, but you also think that you may lose the relationship or you think that it would be embarrassing or maybe you just don't want to stop because you enjoy it. And, and so you think to yourself, like, I know God says to do it this way and I think if couples out there can do it God's way, I think that's great. Right? Good for them. That's awesome. If they can do that, that's it. But what seems right to me, even though I know God said to do it this way and I think that's good, but what seems right to me would be to do this because honestly, Jason, I just can't give that up. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Let me give you one more. Maybe you're here today and you would say, Jason, I want to commit my life to Christ. Like, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow God. But I just don't know if I can really give my life to God. And you've got all these reasons why you can't. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And you know that God's way says you've you got you to gotta believe in Jesus. You've got to you know, confess your sins. You've got you to gotta give your life to Jesus. And so that's God's way, but your way says, you know what? I want to not go to hell, but I still want to do what I want to do. And I just can't give my life to God. You can. You just won't. And as long as we believe that our way is the best way to be happy and fulfilled and and successful, We'll keep going in circles. We'll keep looping around the mountain. We'll keep coming back to those forks in the road until finally either things get so bad or we get so miserable, we will finally believe that God's way is the best way. But it's a cycle that will keep continuing because once we believe God's way is the best way and we obey him, we'll move into some kind of promised land and then we won't be desperate anymore. And we're desperate and we obey, but then we're successful and we partially obey. And then we're miserable, so we're desperate and we obey, but then we're not desperate anymore and so we partially obey. But then we get miserable again and so we're desperate and so on and so forth. Is everybody tracking with me? That's where Israel is. That's where Israel is. And it's where all of us live our lives. But Jesus said that his way is the best way to full life. John 10.10, 10, he said, I came that you could have life and have life to the fullest. And the best lie that's ever been perpetuated by the devil is that somehow following Jesus is restrictive, boring, and that all the fun is outside of God. Jesus said, full life is in me. Full life is in total commitment to me. The best way for you to be happy, fulfilled, have joy, feel alive, is to fully commit, submit, rely on God's ways. So I want to give you three takeaways today from chapter one. Because all of us find ourselves in this place, man. We just, I just don't know that my way is still not the best way to be happy. So I want to give you three, three takeaways from Judges chapter 1. If you've got a pen and a paper, I would encourage you to write it down or maybe take your phone and snap a picture of the screen. But three takeaways from Judges chapter 1 today. Laying the groundwork for the next five weeks, what's going to happen as we move forward. First takeaway is this. God's instructions help us not hold us back. I want to put a comma in there. God's instructions help us not hold us back. It's so easy to think that God's way holds us back. That if I didn't have to obey this, then I could really be free to go do what I want. 
But God's ways don't harm us. God's ways are not to hold us back. They're to help us. So my daughter, Nora, dinner time, she wants nothing but fruit roll-ups and gummy worms. And she thinks when I say no that I'm trying to restrict her and harm her and not let her be happy. If I really want, you know, I, I really just, just want to be happy when Sadie was a little younger and I would say, Sadie, what do you want to be when you grow up? She'd say, in charge. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And so in the mind of this three-year-old or this four-year-old, she thinks daddy's saying no to more sweets is, is, is holding her back. Sometimes you gotta eat the green beans. And I know that because I'm her father. And I want all the teeth to be, still be in her mouth when she's 20. And I don't want her to be a diabetic. And I want her to be able to like, I, I, there's some things as her father, I am helping her by restricting her. Amen. Right? Amen. And so as long as we feel like God's laws are an electric fence, we're in trouble. But God's ways are a roadmap to the best life, the most fulfilling life. Look at what he said in Numbers 33. I read it to you. God didn't want the people to drive, God didn't want Israel to drive all the people out because he wanted them to have to work harder. He didn't want them to have to sweat more. Look at what he said. He said, if you fail to drive out the people who live in the land, those who remain will be like splinters in your eye and thorns in your side. They're gonna harass you in the land where you live. God was telling them to drive the people out for them. If they would have done it God's way, they would have got rid of the thorns in their side and they would have got rid of the splinters in their eye and they would have got rid of all the harassment that was going on in their life. But because they chose to do it their way, they invited that into their life. God's instruction was for their good. If they would have done it God's way, it would have been perfect. But they thought their way was the better way, so they left them around. Every time God instructs you, every time you take God's word and apply it to your life, even if in the short term it feels like you're losing or giving something up, God's ways always lead to fuller life. Every single time. So number one, God's instructions help us, not hold us back. Number two, Second takeaway from Judges chapter one. I can always trace my current, quote, big struggles back to a beginning of, quote, small disobedience. I can always trace my current big struggles back to a beginning of small disobedience. You probably know this because I think they talk about it in school, but did you know that the Titanic did not sink because it hit an iceberg? It was actually built to be able to sustain hitting an iceberg. The reason that the Titanic sank was because they were running out of time and they were running out of money building the ship and they had to hit a deadline. And so what they did is down at the bottom of the boat, instead of using the standard rivets they used everywhere else in the boat, instead of putting them in the standard way that they put in all the other rivets, they had to meet a deadline and cut some, some expenditures. And so they went and just made some small adjustments to the bottom of the boat, which is exactly where the iceberg hit. Three hours later, the boat was underwater. Small disobedience always leads to big struggles. Small disobedience always leads to big struggles. Now, throughout this series, we're gonna look at different stories as we move through the book of Judges. And I don't wanna get too far ahead, 
But I do want to read you something from Judges chapter 19 just to prove the point of what I'm saying about big struggles. Judges chapter 19, verses 29 and 30, is the end of a story. When The last week of this series, we're going to look at Judges 18, 19, 20, and 21, and it is the most bizarre, gut-wrenching, crazy story that you will probably read in the Bible, just to give you a heads up. And so right in the middle of that story is this verse in Judges 19, verses 29 and 30, and I want to read it to you. It says this. It says, when he got home, this is a story we'll talk about later, but it says, when he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. Then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Verse 30, everyone who saw it said such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Let me paraphrase. The people see what just happened and they say, I never thought it would be this bad. Never thought it would be this bad. They just saw this dude cut up a woman's body, put up each piece in, the, in, the mail, in a box and ship it in the mail to different tribes of Israel. And everybody who sees it goes, I never thought it would get to this point. I never thought it would be this bad. We've never seen anybody do anything this bad. You know why that happened in Judges 19? Because of what happened in Judges 1. And it seems like such a far stretch from just a little tiny bit of partial disobedience to cutting ladies' bodies up. And I know that seems like such a wide gap, but can I tell you, what starts in chapter one will eventually, as partial disobedience, partial obedience will get you to Judges 19. And every story as we move through this series, it's gonna get a little bit worse and it's gonna get a little bit worse and it's gonna get a little bit worse because the foundation that was laid was kind of obeying God. And every time Israel does what seems like a good idea, it's a terrible idea. Proverbs says there's a way before each man that seems right, but in the end leads to death. That's what's happening here. And so maybe you find yourself right now at this big struggle and you need God to do a big save and he is so faithful so many times he saves big. But can I tell you that probably at the root to really kind of get at what you're needing to fix, it probably goes back to a few areas of small obedience. Small obedience. So God's instructions help us not hold us back can always trace my big struggles back to the beginning of small disobedience. And the last takeaway from Judges 1 is this. The areas of disobedience in my life that I feel like I have under control will eventually control me. The areas of obedience in my life that I, disobedience in my life that I feel like I have under control will eventually control me. You know this. You've lived it. You've loved somebody who's lived it. You've been around somebody who's lived it. Everything's under control. I got it. It's no big deal. I know it's not ideal, but I got it under control. Eventually, it always controls us, doesn't it? It does. Judges 1.28 says, When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them out completely, not out of the land. So in other words, the Israelites got into the land, and they said, I know that God wants us to drive the people completely out. I know that. But... If we keep them around as slaves, then like we got labor, we got an economy boost, 
Like, let's don't drive them all. I know that's what God said. I think that's a good way if we want to do that. But I think there may be a better idea here. I think there may be a better way here. Let's keep the Canaanites as slaves. We've got them under control. We're bigger than they are. We're stronger than they are. Like, we will control them, but they'll be our slaves, and so that'll be better for us. And if you read much of the Old Testament, you know how this works. But into the Old Testament, Judges takes us to about right here when the people decided that they had their enemies under control. That's the judges. The rest of this right here is story after story after story about how Israel's enemies conquer them and rule over them. Because in Judges chapter 1, a few people made a decision to say, you know what, God told us to do it this way, and that's a good way, but I think I may have a better idea. And I think if we do it our way, we may be a little happier. Is there some area in your life right now that you feel like you know you're disobeying, but you feel like you have it under control? I want to end today by asking you two questions. We're kind of laying the groundwork. Today's a little heavy. It's a little hard, and I know that. But, we, but, but Judges 2 through 21 won't make sense unless we understand Judges 1 and how this got started. And so I want to ask you two questions today as we close out. First question is this. In the areas of my life where I'm enjoying success, am I still radically relying on God and fully obeying him? In the areas of my life where I'm enjoying success, in those areas that I've moved into my promised land, now that I've arrived where I always wanted to get to, am I still radically relying on God and fully obeying him? Or now that I'm not desperate, Am I kind of obeying him? I'm not as bad as that guy, but you know, I mean, I mean, I think if people can do the whole 100% rely on God, obey God, Jason, I think that's great. Man, that's, that's awesome. And I think if that works for them, I think they should do that. But for me, I mean, I love God. I love God. But, you know, it's, it's a little overkill, some of these things, you know. Now that we're not desperate, are we fully relying and obeying God? Second question is this. What areas of my life am I telling God I can't when the truth is I won't? What areas of my life am I telling God I can't when the truth is I won't? Because all of us have this 10 or 20% of our lives that we withhold from God and we just don't feel like we can't. I can't, Jason. I can't get out of that relationship. I can't forgive that person. I can't slow down and take a Sabbath. I can't start tithing. I can't break that addiction. I can't do it. When the truth is we won't. The truth is we won't. So what areas of your life? And here's my prayer, and this is gonna sound kind of sick, and I know, and twisted, and I know, but listen, here's my prayer. I pray that that question haunts you all week long all week long. And I pray that spiritually speaking, you and God would climb in the ring and go 12 rounds and beat the mess out of each other until you get to the point where you can say, God, I believe that your ways for my life are the best way for me to be happy and joyful and content and fulfilled. And God, don't let me get out of this ring until I believe that. Don't let me get out of this ring until I believe that. 
Where are you saying I can't when the truth is you won't? Let's pray.